0: This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. All right, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And we have a very cool episode for you today. So a few weeks ago, uh, Andrew Archer, author of the book Pleading Insanity, came to speak on our campus. This was a a talk that was sponsored by Psychi, an honor society in psychology here at UW-Green Bay. And uh, he sat down with one of our students, Amber Gulotta, uh, for an interview. And part of what's cool about this is that this, the book he wrote, Pleading Insanity, is actually used in one of our capstones, uh, capstone on madness taught by Dr. Chris Vespia. And, uh, so, and Amber is in that course, so she was able to sit down and talk with him a little bit about uh, the book and what inspired him to write it, as well as talk a little bit about the talk he did that night. So without anything else, we'll go to that interview.
1: Drew. Um, thank you so much for coming and talking with me today. Um, we're glad to have you on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so did you want to start out um, kind of by introducing yourself and your book as well, maybe?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'm a clinical social worker uh, that's predominantly practice psychotherapy. Uh, I've also done some teaching wor- workshops and academic work. So I was working at the University of Wisconsin-Madison most recently, um, but I just moved to southern Minnesota, so it was a bit of a drive <laughs> coming to Green Bay, but I'm excited uh, to be here. I'm flattered, actually, to be invited. Um, I just started a business there, a private practice psychotherapy oh, business, awesome. um, Minnesota Mental Health Services, if I can plug that here. Yeah, is oh, absolutely. Just plug be away. Be plugged. <laughs> be links and everything, I'm sure, below this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the I think the reason I kind of got invited was the memoir I, I wrote uh, and published in 2013 titled Pleading Insanity, and that was a book sort of chronicling um, my personal and familial kind of history with manic and depressive episodes and kind of um, climaxes when I was incarcerated for about 16 days in the Dane County Jail, and so it takes place in Um, Madison, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, because I was in college at the time. So most of the events are around um, that environment. Um, Is that an introduction? Yeah, that's that's (laughs) a
1: great introduction. (laughs) All right. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that I personally loved your book. I'm just... You know, totally recommend it to anybody that hasn't read it, and we're actually reading it in my capstone class right
2: now. And the listeners can't see me sliding you a hundred dollars. no, the <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> no endorsements are <laughs> happening in the making of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but it was just I'm forcing you to go on Amazon so. <laughs> after this <laughs> yeah. and type of review, right? A yeah. Review, but it was just. So insightful in many ways, and you do such a great job of describing the realities of bipolar, but also mm-hmm. kind of mental illness in general, and just how deeply it affects those who go through it. So sure. Awesome book. Um, Thanks. So what inspired you to write the memoir? Was it kind of something you always knew you wanted to do? or?
2: Well, actually, I, um, so I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I uh, was studying social work, and I slowly kind of had you know, those late night conversations, you know, Mm. people drinking and smoking, talking about stories (laughs) in their past and realized that a lot of these uh, stories related to mania specifically were pretty entertaining or interesting and novel for people to hear about. So that kind of inspired me to write about them. And so when I finished graduate school, I moved out to northern New Hampshire, very desolate rural area. I was literally living in a log cabin, (laughs) and practicing (laughs) psychotherapy. And so it was one of those kind of Justin Vernon stories of, you know, (laughs) writing a book kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, And that was really, I mean, the inspiration was, I just thought they were interesting stories, you know, from a literary perspective. And I really didn't know a whole lot about the world. (laughs) When I was writing uh, the book, I knew about these stories and experiences. So I, the only really framework I had was personal anecdotes and, but what's I think maybe a little bit different about this book, as long as we're selling stuff and plugging things, is, you know, it's very much a momentary account of like the manic episode. Mm -hmm. So if you think of Kay Redfield Jameson's book, An Unquiet Mind, or even there's a new one that I'm going to mention in the lecture tonight, uh, which is called Mental by Jamie Lowe. These are both, um, you know, autobiographical books by people identifying as having bipolar disorder, that kind of symptom, symptom um, set. and But those books are much more kind of historical, longitudinal, like looking back on their life. And when I wrote mm-hmm. this book, these ideas were pretty fresh because the stuff when I'm in jail was in 2005, and mm-hmm. so I'm writing this in the beginning of 2010. You know, it's really kind of on the forefront of my mind. And at the same time, I'm trying to do it in a real uh, diligent, you know, scrupulous way. So I'm integrating um, the police records, you know, communication I had with people, things that I wrote. Because in a, in a way, it, it kind of parallels the kind of uh, manic experience, which I describe as being very, like, childlike, yeah. almost in a way. And so even in writing the book, it was kind of like <laughs> I was, like, holding up this sign saying, like, this really happened to me. Mm-hmm. This was a real... Experience, I'm trying to convince the reader, like, this crazy shit, I don't know if you can swear on this podcast, but, like, <laughs> this crazy shit that happened, you know, um, and I want people to learn about it and somehow, you know, benefit if they can.
1: Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the information that you share in the memoir is very personal and vulnerable, and you share a lot of intimate details from your episodes of mania and depression to alcohol and substance abuse and even suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. Um, Was this hard for you to look back on during the writing process? um, Or was it kind of almost therapeutic in a sense?
2: I mean, I think it was therapeutic. um, But you have to realize that I had done a lot of psychotherapy Mm -hmm. work as the client Mm -hmm. throughout um, the times after. I mean, I wrote about that a little bit in the book. Mm -hmm. But um, even in graduate school Mm -hmm. and postgraduate, you know, I was working through these things, so in some ways it was kind of um, you know an integrative process to, to write because I had already kind of um, had the experiential kind of story and, and understood the kind of emotions behind it and how it affected other people, and then just bringing it to the page kind of created a resolution mm-hmm. around what happened. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. How did your family react when they read the book? I mean, I know they're in it quite a bit themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Well, it's interesting. It's a good question because um, my father, who I talk about, was diagnosed Mm -hmm. in 1983 with uh, what was then called manic depression. Mm -hmm. Um, He was very private about his experiences. And of course, that's a different time than we're in now. Um, But he actually had a a stroke in um, 2005, the same year that I had the severe kind of manic episode. So um, this, you know, created cognitive, you know, impairments in him and disability. And so if he was still sort of um, doing real estate, which he was kind of in the public eye of it in terms of advertising and stuff, I don't know that I would have written the book. Um, So it was kind of um, just serendipitous that that, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of Happened for him because I don't, you know, it's obviously a tragedy and really weighed on our family. Right. Um, but it, through that, I was kind of able to kind of share these family secrets that otherwise probably wouldn't have been talked about. Okay,
1: awesome. So they're overall, overall pretty supportive. Yeah,
2: my mom, you know, helped look at drafts and oh, gave me pointers, cool. and both of my yeah. siblings read it before it was published and were really supportive about speaking out on it and talking about. It. And mm-hmm. actually, since then. Um, my older brother um, has come to workshops that are lectures that I've given and talked about his own experience too.
1: Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Um, so kind of just going back to the idea of bipolar disorder as a whole, what do you think as a clinician and as somebody who's gone through it yourself, um, what do you think are some of the most common misperceptions that people have about bipolar
2: disorder? Uh uh-huh. Um, well, I think right away, just in the, the title, the the name of it is you know, when you think of bipolar, mm-hmm. people think of it as an adjective. And, right. and bi- bipolar means, you know, up and down or mm-hmm. two points, extreme points. Um, and so people often equate it with, you know, a person being like a light switch up and down mm-hmm. really quickly. But actually, um, the symptoms and criteria of bipolar disorder are a much more longitudinal perspective. So people have these, these highs or manic episodes that typically are followed by depressive episodes. And they're, we're talking about months on end, usually, mm-hmm. not you know within a day. So sometimes I'll hear, right. hear clients tell me, you know, I was so manic that I cleaned the house for three hours. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. well, I understand that that's like a kind of anxiety, emotional kind of dysregulation happening for you. But it's a different kind of experience uh, from what we think of in terms of mania that's much more long um, acting. And so one of the things I talk about typically in, in workshops and lectures is, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and right. how um, you know, they've profited off of kind of Western conception of mental health mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And and the problem with well, there's lots of problems with it, but <laughs> the problem with bipolar disorder and a lot of the medications for it. Is that the research done or the trials are tend to be abbreviated you know because that's Mm -hmm. how you save money you have a three month or at most a six month trial of how people do on lithium for example is is kind of known as the gold standard of um, medication treatment for bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. but if you want to understand kind of what we're talking about in terms of bipolar disorder we're thinking of a a long-term you know longitudinal condition so to really capture that you would have to have people um in some kind of trial for years on end Mm -hmm. because there's these long spans of depression typically or sometimes shorter spans of mania weeks to months on end but then the person will have no symptoms for long periods of time so it's not like a light switch kind of up and down um
1: it's more Subtle almost and stretched out in the book. You actually have a really good um, Kind of a metaphor for it as like two stones rubbing together. One stone being mania and the other is depression mm-hmm. um, And anxiety kind of works as the force that's rubbing them together and eventually right. one kind of wears away and kind of wins in a uh-huh. sense. So it's, it's a slow process. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: and you know metaphors are great for medical <laughs> <and> psychological <laughs> for things sure. so another another <laughs> metaphor that comes to mind is uh you know, if you think of like like the stones, there has to be an anxiety kind of process, and and so when there's movement of some sort, I think of it uh, also as like uh, a skyscraper. When you if you start to experience anxiety of some kind, and that could be the anxiety and ecstasy of a new relationship, right? You can get fixated and stuck on mm-hmm. that person and the feelings and such. You start moving up this building in a way, in terms of symptoms, in the same sense that if a relationship ends, you become really depressed. There's some anxiety, rumination, negative thinking that moves you up this um, metaphorical building. And at the top, the extreme ends, you know, a building is very buildings are tall. Well, <laughs> where I live in Mankato, <laughs> Minnesota, the buildings aren't very tall. But in cities, urban areas, you know, the buildings are tall. So if you think of the, the metaphor, if you get to the top, the peak of kind of manic experience, people literally, I mean, think they can fly. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this sense of invincibility, sort of being at the top of the world, jumping off the building. And on the other extreme, in terms of depression, um, people commit suicide. I mean, the suicide rate mm-hmm. for people with bipolar disorder is 60 times the international um, average, Um, the lethality of it is three to one. So meaning if someone with bipolar disorder attempts suicide three times, then they're likely to die on that third attempt, statistically, versus all other disorders, on average, it's 30 Mm -hmm. to one. So um, there's a real, um, you know, I guess, lethality or morbidity to um, bipolar disorder that kind of makes it stand apart. From other psychological conditions,
1: right for sure, um, and I think going back to what you were talking about with the medication, I think not just for bipolar, but for a lot of different psychological disorders, people tend to think medication is the only type of treatment, um, uh-huh. and that's certainly not the case. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. What was your kind of experience with medication and psychotherapy working together?
2: Uh huh. Um. Well, i'm I'm distracted because I'm thinking of a different thing if I can sure, say that personally. We'll come it. back to it because I definitely want to talk about uh, medication. But I think, you know, writing this book and having the kind of the privilege that I do in mm-hmm. terms of working at universities and speaking in front of other clinicians and stuff, you know, it allows me to take kind of political and moral perspectives on some of these issues. So I in the talk tonight, i'll I'll talk about. You know um American culture, Western culture, through the lens of the kind of history of bipolar disorder right but when when we think of mental illness or mental health um, it's really and i had so I had a long long drive out here from southern <laughs> Minnesota to think about some of these things, but it's really like the the kind of paradigm that I like to think of is you know so much of biological psychiatry and, and western culture studying mental health throughout the last 30 or 40 years has been about the brain mm-hmm. right and that that's where the sort of we're going to unlock that sort of treasure chest to figure out the genetics of right. uh, mental health and it's so it's kind of like the idea that you're going into this is my this is my great idea here that I <laughs> up in the car. it's like going into the the rainforest looking for a specific species of animal is like are these quote-unquote mental illnesses things that we find and discover Mm. versus is it more that culture and society creates a kind of clearing or a space or in this sort of metaphor are we knocking down a bunch of the trees and saying look here's this thing, not realizing that the effect of, mm-hmm. you know, culture, and, yeah, alienation, yeah. the collapse of community in America, especially mm-hmm. the way we communicate, how we spend our time online, etc. So the the point I'm going to try and kind of make, and hopefully I remember some of this stuff to say, <laughs> you know, who knows, you get up there with all the <laughs> just, bright lights and, you know, I might just have a panic yeah. attack or something on mm-hmm. stage. But the, the point I'm going to make is that the sort of the water that we're swimming in kind of unknowingly is or are these financial markets that we're constantly embedded in because our lives are all digital that we're we're processing you know not just advertising but lots of different um, economic things throughout our day in a, in a way that we've never done before so to just say that you know what sort of mental illness is or what mm-hmm. you know solves it if, if and this is why the DSM is so problematic, is that you can't have a universal uh, description of mental health because that eradicates culture, it er- eradicates mm-hmm. history and sociopolitical processes that are happening.
1: Right. Culture is so important to consider when, you know, anything mental health related is right. an important piece that just can't be extracted, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, awesome.
2: So, but you were asking me about medication medication. (laughs) way off uh, track, but I think it relates.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what, um, what was your experience with kind of the combination of both medication and psychotherapy when you were dealing with?
2: Yeah. Well, so I, I write about it in the book, uh, that when I was first diagnosed in 2002, I was Mm -hmm. prescribed lithium and, um, therapy wasn't, like, a big thing in my family, so I didn't do okay. much psychotherapy initially, and I, you know, really wish I would have because mm-hmm. it, it's it's such a struggle, um, for one, just to obtain that diagnosis because right. your trajectory is, like, this is a chronic condition sort of the rest of my life. Um, there isn't a kind of narrative in Western culture about, quote-unquote, cure for bipolar disorder. It just mm-hmm. doesn't exist. There, I mean, there's people... Like me, other, you know, authors, you know, celebrities that have come out or different people that, you know, are faces for kind of recovery, but there isn't like a sense of how you um, sort of beat the illness or yeah. get better or something. There's just ways to manage it. And I think that that idea of chronically managing mental health, mm-hmm. it you know, that started as kind of a metaphor was something like lithium for bipolar disorder, you know, the, the idea was that it was like insulin for diabetes. It's like okay. you need this thing, right, in a mm-hmm. chronic way that then what happened was, and I talk about this probably tonight, in 1987 when Prozac came out on the market, Uh, that was fitted around the serotonin hypothesis of depression. So you need more um, serotonin in your brain. Serotonin helps with mood. So something like an SSRI, which creates more serotonin in the brain, is kind of the the vehicle for alleviating um, depression. Now, we know sort of um, 30 years (laughs) later that that's overly simplistic and A great uh, sort of uh, tagline if you want to sell millions of antidepressant Mm -hmm. drugs. So I'm always thinking about, you know, kind of the the 30,000 foot perspective on um, all of these things. And then when, you know, my writing and talking, I try and integrate um, personal experience. But so back to your question, you know, lithium is really useful in terms of uh, acting as a kind of tonic to the body and system, so it calms mm-hmm. people down in a manic state and tends to um, improve or stabilize mood. The interesting thing about it is that nobody knows how it works. <laughs> actually, it they <laughs> think that it, it mimics the sodium ions in the brain, but um, they don't know, actually, biochemically um, how it works. But there's been you know studies showing... A kind of inverse relationship between um, suicide, homicide felonies like sexual assault, and um, and sort of trace elements like um, higher rates of lithium in the drinking water, like different counties like in Texas, for example. Uh, Jamie Lowe talks about this in her book, Mental. Um, so there's some idea that maybe um, this is sort of you know an organic, substance that everybody could kind of benefit from but now when you think about these like trace differential amounts in the water it's nothing like the amount somebody would take who's right who's diagnosed with bipolar disorder it's like you know thousands and thousands of times more mm-hmm. um, but what's interesting about it is that it's um you know it's literally made up of stars <laughs> like the big <laughs> bang you know uh mm-hmm. produced lithium it's the third element on the periodic table um it's in our batteries, our phones, like all kinds of things. So it's a natural um, alkali metal. And so what that means is that it's not patentable. So pharmaceutical companies can't make money can't on make it. The money. And so I think, you know, and i will talk more about that um, tonight and how how I think the, the market changed to predominantly antipsychotic and antidepressant medications, a kind of polytherapy for mood disorders in the early 90s uh, versus you know, starting in the 70s and and um, for many decades people just took lithium as a monotherapy that's what my father was prescribed in 83 when he was diagnosed and so we've kind of went away from that and I don't know how much that your listeners want to hear about the no, history of lithium know. and it's how it I, and, I know a fair amount about yeah. it but yeah well, and the kind of the the ironic thing about lithium is you know, can be a kind of quote-unquote lifesaver for people, but it's very lethal. It's easy to, um, you know, have kidney damage and, right. and shut it's down the body just from line overdosing. Line so it's like the thing that can really help people can be really destructive in, in terms of, you know, what I was talking about before with suicide right. and things.
1: Yeah, you talk a lot about in your book about how you had to get tested, you know, regularly to make sure your levels were okay with right. the lithium and stuff. And yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of extra stuff that goes into... Into the world of medication, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And when you think about it from a psychiatric perspective, you know it's a lot of work to have people do blood work, right? Um, and check their uh, how it's affecting their kidneys and things versus mm-hmm. um, something like the second generation antipsychotics. Most of them um, don't have that kind of rigorous follow up, and um, their half life is shorter in the body.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. So you've clearly been through a lot. <laughs> you have a lot of experience. So if you could give one piece of advice to anyone who's listening, who might be currently struggling with bipolar disorder or even any kind of mental disorder, um, what kind of words of wisdom would you give to them?
2: Wow, words of <laughs> words <No> of wisdom. <laughs> <anything. laughs> Well, you know, part of my work as a social worker is uh, really empowering people mm-hmm. and, and advocating. advocating that they trust their own process. So I'm not a real didactic clinician or, or one to say that I know much of anything. I have a pretty narrow <laughs> <laughs> focus of knowledge and I'm lucky enough to have colleges invite me to share that brief amount of, <laughs> of information I have. But the, the vehicle for me, and I talk about it, a bit in the book, which we're emphasizing, pleading insanity, everyone should buy that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Another plug. That's really uh, been a dramatic change for me is uh, mindfulness meditation, specifically um, practicing um, Zen Buddhism, which is something I've been doing uh, since the end of graduate school. So, you know, and it's kind of of ironic because I'm here talking about this huge book, story that I created. And it's kind of the antithesis of mindfulness practices is you're interrupting that narrative story process maker is that you're just staying right here and you're questioning what is this constantly rather than this affects me and what I want to do. And, you know, the, right. the center of the universe um, mentality that I certainly get caught up in. But it's a, I think it's a vehicle to um, meet that um, experience and adapt in a way. And inevitably, you know, I think when you slow down and pay attention to how you're thinking and how it affects other people, that there's this ethical, um, dimension to it. So if you're, if you're paying attention to your decisions, um, it's different than the impulsivity, you know, the extreme examples are the, the manic, um, experiences I have, um, in the book. So if you can recognize and notice, you know, your behavior and how you're thinking, create a, a pause before you um, react, that I think that's, that's, that's beneficial, um, whether you have bipolar disorder or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of back to your question, I mean, I would encourage people to talk with somebody about it. it doesn't have to be necessarily a therapist or a psychiatrist but um we all suffer in a way you know and we're all trying to figure it out you know feeling our way in the dark more or less and uh if you can if you can bring that out into the open with somebody and let them know that that's a that's a better um I think chance that you're going to work through it or manage it in some way. So not, you know, not keeping it hidden, not not hiding right. it. That's kind wow. of um, was part of the intention around the book is like, you know, in 2013, maybe there weren't a lot of psychotherapists or memoirs about bipolar disorder. I mean, I'm sure now there, there are quite a few more. <laughs> but um, that was my intention is to say, you know, we all have problems, we can all benefit from from sharing those things and whatever is appropriate to that person, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. So kind of going back to that topic of mindfulness, I know that's something you're very interested currently. So kind of what is mindfulness, if you had to define it generally, and kind of how is it used?
2: Well, like I was saying, um, you know, well, what what it makes me think of actually is, so I have a nine-month-old son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a whole other <laughs> podcast <laughs> we could do, but... <laughs> mindfulness is not something you have to obtain mm-hmm. so i can maybe this is why interviews are a little difficult for me most of my time is spent on the floor you know playing with blocks <laughs> and construction things right. and you know putting little donuts on pillars and uh but w- when you think of babies right they'll just their attention is to whatever stimulus is in the environment and they're you know so a plane goes by and we're sitting outside and he notices the plane he turns his head and he's like what the mm. fuck is that thing <laughs> like that curiosity and not knowing Right. Is, is in a way mindfulness, so he can just feel sensations. He feels hot, he feels cold, he, he likes something, he doesn't like something. So it's, in a way, I think, I mean, it's cultivating some awareness for how you think about things. So it's not just necessarily paying attention, it's noticing how you pay attention and what you tend to habitually do. Right. So when, when you're sitting on a meditation cushion, there's nowhere to go, (laughs) you just have to have to notice your inclinations and how you think about things and where your mind goes. And um, in this kind of frenetic, crazy world that we live in, that's pretty challenging for people to do. And I've been fortunate, you know, economically, where I can spend a lot of time on a meditation cushion, and I can teach other people about mindfulness. And so mindfulness isn't really a thing. It's something that's there from from the beginning and we tend to put stuff in the way um what comes to mind you know as you're asking about it is i spent some time last year with the wisconsin prison mindfulness initiative and these are people that go into the uh prisons in wisconsin and Mm -hmm. teach mindfulness to the inmates a lot of them um in solitary confinement so um that's something I was kind of maybe going to mention tonight in the lecture as well, um, is, you know, these just like deplorable conditions that people live in. The, these members, I don't do it anymore, but these teachers, you know, offer something to these guys. And it was just an incredible experience to hear some of these individual stories about being in prison and hearing them practice and that they're able to sit and kind of pay attention. And right. But it's it's. Crazy, you know, all these prisons are kind of out in rural areas. We don't see them, you know, they're not in downtown Green Bay or in Madison or Milwaukee, they're out in the um, country. And, um, you know, some of these guys that I talked to had been in solitary confinement for over 10 years. Oh, wow. And, you know, when you think about that, it's considered torture at like 10 or 15 days yeah. to be in solitary confinement. So, yeah, so I think I don't I don't know how I would define I <laughs> mindfulness it just necessarily. Is. It's just, it's it's a I think in a, in a sense it's cultivating awareness mm-hmm. but understanding that we all have that capacity. It's just we get caught up in our lives and our stories about our lives and what right. we're doing and that. so it isn't something to obtain. It's just it's kind of relinquishing our habits or or letting go of these right. conditions and things. And it's a it's a never-ending kind of um, pursuit.
1: Oh, awesome. Well, kind of going from one extreme to in the context of prisons to the context of college, well, or not so extreme, depending <laughs> yeah. on whose yeah. opinion you're asking. Right. Um, do you have any particular mindfulness techniques that might be helpful for college students?
2: Um, well, I think the the most uh, broad um, kind of approach has come out of people like Jon Kabat-Zinn. Uh, he was the founder of uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is, I think, like an 8- to 10-week program. Uh, it's secular-based mindfulness, so sometimes people um, associate mindfulness with, like, Eastern psychologies, mm-hmm. like Buddhism and things, but it's it's really a practice that um, it doesn't matter if you have a religious affiliation right. or not. It's, I mean, you can be mindful a mindful Muslim, a mindful Christian, a mindful Buddhist, like it doesn't matter. But so the, the literature on that, I think, is most kind of relatable to American culture because um, it's it's apart from any religious kind of dogma mm-hmm. or things, um, which, you know, kind of makes me think about one aspect of the book that, that maybe gets missed is, you know, so when I was kind of writing about some of these experiences in my life, one of the Real challenging things was I was coming out of a Catholic upbringing and starting to to question you know the idea of um, you know monotheistic you know God you know up in the sky whole thing <laughs> and uh, and that kind of um, kind of distress from stepping out of that system way of thinking or individuating in a way um, I think is part of what um, lends to uh, symptoms like depression and mania is, and so I, I just point that out because we forget that um, Western culture is sort of dominated by this idea of self-reliance and mm-hmm. hyper-individualism. That that's like yeah. we forget that that's different than all you know, over the everywhere. the yeah. world. That like the individual or self is the most important thing. But it so I so I think of the kind of ideology aside from cultural and different. Um, Economic, socio political processes is like this idea of individu- individuation or mm-hmm. separation from the family, the kind of storm and stress of uh, becoming on your own is like. And, not to go back to to baby stories, but my you know my nine month old just a couple months ago, he's all of a sudden realizing that when you leave the room, like there is a potential for you to come back. He right. realizes that you know object permanence, and mm-hmm. that so there, and he it's really upsetting. It's it's like the worst <laughs> experience in the world to the, that he's alone. And so in a way, you know that's kind of what happens as uh, we turn sort of eighteen or go off to college. In this mm-hmm. culture, is like you have to become. Your, own, your self, own self. And that's um, really uh, distressing for anybody.
1: For sure. Definitely. Awesome. Well, mindfulness, everybody check it out. Yeah. It's useful yeah. for everyone, huh? Right, right. <laughs> so, mindfulness is one of your current interests. What are some of your other current interests related to psychology?
2: Um, well, I'm really interested actually in anthropology oh, and, okay. and studying. Um, people like Emily Martin, who wrote a book about mania and depression in American culture. Mm -hmm. And she's an ethnographic writer and someone that she says living under the description of bipolar disorder. So she doesn't necessarily identify with that, but she's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, She's a fantastic writer. Um, Philip Cushman wrote a book, uh, Constructing the Self, Constructing America, that sort of blew my mind, and now I've been (laughs) buying all these old esoteric books with essays of his in them. Um, But so him and both Emily Martin, I think, would describe themselves as cultural constructionists, and they talk about, I think Cushman specifically talks about, you know, the the way to understand a culture is to sort of look look over the person's shoulder and see what they're reading Mm -hmm. at a time, so you get a glimpse at... um, you know how it is; people are understanding the world. That that's how you uh, can really grasp uh, what's happening. And so, so those are a couple people that I really like. And then I've been um, academically kind of studying internal family systems therapy. Okay. What is that th- uh, therapy? This is um, Richard Schwartz uh, founded this. Um, it kind of branches off of family systems therapy, okay. but but he basically projects. Um, systems theory onto the psyche itself, consciousness. Okay. So he, it's a it's a real paradigm shift from uh, Western psychology because it um, kind of defies this idea that there's this uni- unified constru- constructed self, and he sees the mind as more of a mosaic. So it's multiple, okay. and he talks about uh, there being different parts. and uh, I think it's kind of it's where EMDR was at. You know, maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's part of a a non-pathologizing, really like progressive liberal movement in therapy. So I, so I, I think um, it's more metaphorical, but I think it's really useful because it's saying that the client essentially has the capacity to heal from things. And it's not the expert therapist I'm pointing to myself. <laughs> Can't <laughs> point in podcasts because nobody can see you pointing, but... It's not um, the therapist that has all the answers. You're just working with this client to see sort of um, objectively how they over-identify with parts of themselves in the same kind of way that like in families, you know, you have people that go to sort of extremes or polarizations to make up for the imbalances in the psychological processes. Mm -hmm. So he projects that onto the mind itself and you can, there's these different kind of techniques that you can work with that with people that are, are pretty powerful. I have a... Uh, my Zen teacher, Flint Sparks, is trained in this method, so i 've witnessed it. you know he 's mm-hmm. done it in group kind of settings, meditation retreats and things. so um, I hope more people, more clinicians start to get uh, trained in understanding of that again, not because it 's necessarily the the one or the the best thing so we'll out there, and, but it's yeah. it's part of a kind of political movement against the medical model, the dSM that i 'm really um, interested in?
1: Awesome, for sure. Yeah. Well, you are doing a lecture here tonight on campus, as we mentioned, yeah. about um, manic depression in America. And you mentioned a few things you're going to touch on, but what is your your main mission for this lecture?
2: <laughs> my main, <laughs> your mission. main mission? Well, that's going to be different. <laughs> that's going to be different than my <laughs> mission tends to be subversive in some way. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna try and upset people All a little right. bit, make people no. I'm okay. just kidding. Well, but bring it I, I mean, I do like to um, kind of push the envelope and and the kind of status quo on things. But uh, fundamentally, I guess what I'm gonna do is talk about um, the history of biological psychiatry, pharmaceutical industry. Um, through the lens of what used to be called manic depression. Now we talk about bipolar disorder and kind of integrate my own uh, personal experiences with that to kind of set a stage um, to eventually get at this idea that's, that's born out of, I think, cultural constructionism, being that um, we should be treating uh, mental sort of impairments, mental health, as um, kind of you know, smoke detectors rather than actual fires. So when you think of a, a smoke detector going off in your house, you wouldn't start hitting it with an ax or dumping water <laughs> on it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you, what, what would happen is you would start to look around and say, what's setting off this alarm? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the problem? Like what's happening in our culture? What's going on in the family, your relationships, mm-hmm. and, as opposed to, I think what we've overemphasized the brain and the biological process. So the common um, response for people suffering in a psychological way is to get prescribed a medication. A diagnosis typically uh, fits with specific uh, medications. Um, and so the, the broader point that I'm going to try and show is that w- what I found was interesting uh, just in kind of studying the last couple of years is that as income inequality goes up, in countries, mood disorder rates go up in countries, so I'm going to, you know, kind of use some smoke and mirrors to (laughs) kind (laughs) of illustrate that, Um, not to necessarily say that it's cause and effect, but it's just an interesting correlation to uh, kind of map out my familial experience Mm -hmm. with diagnosis and mania and suicide with the changes in income inequality in the United States itself. So I'm going to kind of do a bit of a cross-cultural thing um, using Ethan Waters' book, uh, Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche, which is just one of my favorite books in the last few years. Um, Because the the real uh, issue with, I think, um, psychology in the West currently is that not just that we're either right or wrong about you know, everything being reduced down to the brain or the, you know, the mind and brain almost being one thing is what right. kind of common knowledge is now, but that we're exporting that idea to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So even though all of our research and studies is based on you know, Western-educated, you know, rich, industrial, democratic People. That's that's only a small portion. Right. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's like a, a strange demographic. But we're taking that information. And we're saying to all the other countries that this is the way to think about the mind, and this is what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. So Ethan Waters, you know, talks about we're not just exporting McDonald's and Starbucks to other countries. We're <laughs> we're exporting this idea of what it means all to it be human. <laughs> and it's not really whether it's it's right or wrong. It's what what's the implication of that. And so what I'm to talk about tonight, is that our conception of the mind is perfect for pharmaceutical companies to make money off of that conception with biological approaches like medication. And not to say that medications are good or bad. It's just really interesting how this economic process fits together right. so well. And it's not its not a conspiracy. It's just how consumer capitalism works mm-hmm. and, and hierarchies and that sort of thing. So... If any of that makes any kind of sense, then that's what (laughs) what I'm going to try and explain. I'll have the PowerPoint, you know, I'm I'm a visual learner, learner, so it's much, (laughs) it'll make much more (laughs) sense with pictures and stuff. And
1: we're all looking forward to it. It should be. A good time. If you're listening to this podcast, it airs in November. So if you're listening to this podcast, it already happened. And if you didn't go, you missed out, I'm sure. Uh, But good luck tonight. We're all looking forward to it. And I just wanted to thank you again so much for being on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Your expertise. Yeah.
2: And thank you so much for reading my book. It's clear that you have like a real astute kind of understanding of it and really paid attention to it. So Plug yeah. that
1: again, pleading insanity by Andrew Archer. Is there anything yeah. else you wanted to throw on out? <laughs> well, I mean, if it? people
2: are interested in in connecting with me, andrewjamesarcher.com okay. is my website. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping to connect more with um, colleges and psychology departments and um, share the book with really anybody that's interested. That's so awesome! Well,
1: thank you again for coming today, Andrew. Good yeah, tonight. thanks
0: a lot. Thanks. I appreciate it. <music> And that will do it for this episode of Psychology and Stuff. Special thanks to our guest, Andrew Archer and uh, Amber Galata, who interviewed him. Uh, I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, and our intern, Sophie Seelin. I also want to thank our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlice. And I want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up next time. So in our next episode, we will have Dr. Janelle Holstead, chair of the Human Development Program here at UWGB and a psychology faculty member. And she is going to be talking about school psychology. So until then thanks for listening